Hey gang, welcome to episode 99 of the No Persinium podcast, your guide to everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you on a lovely night here in Los Angeles. This week on the show, we have not one, but two of our favorite people to talk about all things immersive with. Coming to us from New York City is our man in New York City, Zay Amsbury. And from the comfort of his kitchen table in Los Angeles is our very good friend, Brian Bishop of The Verge. This is this is one of those episodes that uh, I hope you enjoy when we get philosophical, because that's, that's all you're getting. You're just getting a big episode of philosophy. Brian and Zay have never talked before tonight. Um, and it's, it's a great one. It's just, it's, I'm going to be arrogant and say, I really like this episode. This one I'm calling the big eye and other terms of endearment. We're talking language. You'll hear me lay it out in a couple of minutes here. Let's get to some housekeeping and to, uh, well, it's pretty much all housekeeping. You'll, you'll understand in a second. First up, want to give a major thank you to Lisa Springle and Carly Blair for being the latest backers of our Patreon campaign. The Patreon campaign is entering a new phase. We're looking to get to up to $300 a month. We're like $222 as I record this right now because we want to start being able to um, give some travel stipends uh, for our various reviewers around the country. Yes, around the country. You'll hear about more about that in a second. Um, we do all this craziness for you. Um, and we do it because we love to, um, but it does cost. So uh, there's wear and tear on cars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sadly, sadly, we don't live in a utopia. If only we did. But you can make it a little bit better by going to patreon.com slash noproscenium, dropping a dollar a month, or drop more. Totally good on that. Uh, we do have some special live stream stuff that's going to be happening uh, once a month for people who back in at a, a little bit of higher levels. Um, we're selling access. <laughs> I don't know why anyone would pay for it, but um, <laughs> we're selling access. Um, it's late. I can be honest. Um but I, I truly appreciate it. Uh, you know me. I mean, maybe you don't. Maybe this is your first episode. So sorry, I'm very self-depreciating during these parts. Um, but what I'm not self-depreciating about is how well everything immersive is going on Facebook. Got 828 members as I read this right now. Uh, it's been around for uh, less than a month and a half, and it's going so strong. Just people coming in all the time global community of people uh, who love everything immersive. That's why it's called everything immersive. Uh, people looking for recommendations. Sometimes people even help them with that. We announce shows. It's a great way to keep the pulse of all things immersive online. But that's another thing I want to talk to you about this week. Because, you know, I was going to wait for um, the big Big 100, or, or maybe the 101 episode, to really change the format. But frankly, I got tired of what I started calling the Matto opening, and uh, I, I think you probably know what I mean by that. I uh, I don't want to read all the news of the week anymore at the start of the show. Uh, we're going to add some new segments in, starting uh, starting in episode 101. Episode 100, that's going to be uh, 
that's going to be just, this is just going to be me having fun. Me having fun with some of you. I hope, uh, hope you find it fun. I'm hoping to have fun. I'm intending to, but that's not what you want to hear about right now. You want to hear where am I going to get the news, Noah? Like I, I listen to the show because you, you read me the news. Uh, I enjoy that. Well, the five of you really enjoy that. Um, and, and uh, thank you because, um, at least somebody was liking it. I wasn't liking it anymore, but somebody was. So I appreciate that. But uh, I want to connect you with the resources you need. Uh, and because of with that in mind, we've just started a major overhaul on the Medium blog. Notice I'm not calling it a collection, not calling it a publication. I'm just going to call it a blog. We've started a major overhaul on the No Persinium blog, which is at Medium medium.com slash no dash persinium. And that's where you're going to find, you already found reviews. We've got a couple new ones this week. Uh, one uh, of Bricklage's immersive encounters uh, and another uh, is coming up uh, on one-on-one Chicago's The Outpost. Both of these are by our brand new Midwest review crew who I cannot be more excited to have come on board. It's it's the creative team behind Shadow of the Run, and they're going out there and using their creative insight to review our show, the our shows, your shows, these shows, all shows, all shows in their purview. Um, and I just I couldn't be more excited and ecstatic to have these folks coming on board. Um, they volunteered. I love it. Uh, we are looking for more reviewers, and we are looking for more spies in in all the regions that we cover. So if you're you're interested in getting on this gravy train. <laughs> of that that rich rich patreon money that'll get you five dollars in gas to go review a show then um you're the kind of crazy that i've been looking for i like to call it the pirate armada um and and yeah i'll i'll give you an eye patch if if you insist on having an eye patch you're gonna get an eye patch but that's not what i'm trying to tell you but i digress oh oh but i digress i've reorganized the blog trying to hoping that we're going to keep evolving it to make this the hub for the information that you want and need. So right now, if you go to no proscenium uh, on medium, medium.com slash no dash proscenium, you're going to find um, a tab for reviews. That one's obvious. Something called the newswire, which is where we're going to put the news as it appears. When we get a show announcement, boom, it's going to be there. So you want to check the newswire. Um, a local section. What would a local section be? Why that's where we're going to organize the different regions that we cover. So the articles are going to appear there and features also have their own tab. So, um, and pretty soon the podcast is going to have its own tab on there so you can get down into the archives. This is a work in progress, but I'm very excited about it. Um, it's probably going to make some of the work we do here easier. Uh, and it's definitely going to impact the length of this part of the show, uh, because I'll just say, go, go check out the news. Um, there will always be one or two things that I do want to draw your attention to in the macro sense. Uh, and right now that one, the first one is that Indiecade has announced their dates for this year. Remember last year we did night games at Indiecade. Like I curated that and that's where the Kansas collection first appeared. And that's where, um, uh, Cavell had its bow. I should probably explain Indicade. It's the International Festival of Independent Games that happens in Los Angeles every year. 
um, people from all over the planet come. And what's great about it is that we've started to sneak in immersive experiences. Why? Because we can. Um, will that happen again this year? I'd, I'd be pretty be surprised if we didn't. Then again, I've learned to accept surprise in my life. But, but I'd be surprised if we didn't have, have some immersive stuff going on at Indiecade this year. Stick around. Um, keep your ear on the show. Keep your eye on the blog. And uh, we'll let you know when we know. Here's the other piece of news that I want you to know about. Um, I mentioned in passing last week that we have a party on June 1st that we're really excited about. Uh, This is a kickoff party for Immersive at the Fringe. Uh, Last week, um, we had one location, but we we got smart because... um, the folks over at Stephanie Fury Studio Theater, they were throwing a kickoff party. And they're working they're working in the big eye tent, right? They've got fire and light going on, uh, which is which is the, the a version of the firelight, which is the show that they do that's here in immersive land. Uh, and they've also got some like another show at their space, Rise and Fall of Dracula is also gonna be at their space. Um, and so they're, they're working, they're working the big eye vein over there. Oh, I just made a Dracula pun. Um, they're working the big eye vein and it just, it just made more sense, particularly because the venue we were going to hold this thing at is being run by theater asylum and theater asylum is, is also helping out at Stephanie Fury's studio theater during the fringe. So Stephanie Fury studio theater and theater asylum present the preview night party for the Hollywood Fringe. We here at No Persinium are the official media sponsor, and that means our job is to get you to come to the party. There's booze, there's food, there's 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 us, there's them, there's this is a spot for all you immersive kids to come on down and meet each other before the true insanity of Fringe begins. So June first, seven to ten. Be there or be a decahedron. That's weirder than being square. You don't want to be weirder than square. I mean, you want to be weirder than a square. But a dodecahedron? Come on. That's just, that's just asking for trouble. It's late. That's it. That's the news and notes. That's how it's going to be from now on. I have no idea how long that was because I'm a little bit rambly tonight. You're always rambly, Noah. Yeah, I know. I'm doing something about it. Um, it's going to get worse because you're about to have me, Zay, and Brian just riffing. Riffing for a while. Um, the show's going to change. Everything about the show is changing. Enjoy this. It's the last of the great weirdo episodes of No Persinium. That's not true. Um, but it's the last of the ones that have this format. So with that in mind, enjoy. All right, guys. So what I wanted to do tonight is I wanted us to talk terms, which as we know, I, I don't really like to do in public so much, not on the show, 
except when I have to, except Brian, you, and Zay, you, and I, individually, we do this all the time. So I thought it'd be fun to get us all together virtually and talk about, you know, the big I, the I word, uh, talk about, you know, what do we call alternate reality, whatevers, all that sort of stuff this time. Um, partly because this is episode 99, we're about to go into episode 100, <laughs> and everything's, ch- yeah, I know, right? And, and everything's going to change. Wow. So this is a nice time to put a, put a stake in the ground and kind of, at least for the next six months, talk about how we're talking about that stuff. So how does that sound to you, boys? Cool. I'm into it. All right. And the first guy you heard was Brian, and the second guy you heard was Zay, because that's something I'm really bad at. Like, I, I listen back to episodes these days. I'm like, I never identified who's saying what. This is terrible. This is a criticism I give to other podcasts all the time. Yeah, I'm so guilty of it. Um, so, I guess, I mean, maybe we start this in the form of, like, I don't want to start as a Noah rant because it's a conversation. So, guys, feel free to, like, stop me and interrupt me at any old point. Um, I mean, I like Noah rants, so that's just, that's just me. Yeah, no, I mean, I know. I'm, do. Gonna, I'm just going to take out my surfboard and write it. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. We got the right tone already. This is fantastic. Um, so, so the I word, immersive. Um, boy, is it tricky. It's it's um, it's so useful. It's but it's also like sriracha in that people want to put it on everything, and maybe it doesn't belong on everything. Um, <laughs> may, maybe maybe it doesn't belong on ice cream. You know what I mean? Um, okay, now you're crazy. That's that's wrong. You know, oh, it's not a good start to your rant. My surfboard is like, it, it's just bobbing up and down. Give me give me a wave, man. Are you guys are you guys saying that you like sriracha ice cream? That, I I have some in the freezer. Do you want it? You, you it's do? pretty good. Are you are you being serious? Um, I mean, it's gelato, sriracha gelato. But. Oh my god, I can't I can never tell Brian's being serious. So, but the point is Actually, this, right? So like, maybe maybe maybe. <laughs> Maybe the, the I would, but, but so here's this thing, right? So just recently I've started saying the big I, right? Because this idea that there's maybe, maybe immersive has two modes. It's this big catch all that like all the stuff that like Michael Tara Garver talks about as open frame, you know, the site specific, the processional, the interactive, like all those terms say that we, you know, we've used in the past. Right, right. Maybe we call that an immersive itself falls under big eye. And then there's then there's deep immersive, which is the stuff that gets personal or that really is about the contact but even that i i don't know i don't know if it's that so i you know i it's funny because having this conversation i feel i feel very guilty and i feel like afterwards i need to go to facebook because aaron me on that thread that i think andrew started on the everything immersive facebook page at one point she just because she's brilliant and um uh uh, confrontation is not the right word, but she's um, she just asks the question. She just says, "What does immersive mean, and who decides?" And I remember staring at her post for, I mean, a good fifteen minutes, realizing I, 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 I sort. I don't know if I have an answer, and I was afraid to even start typing. But ever since she posted that, I've been thinking about that a lot. And what I keep thinking about 
Well, I think about three things. Um, and I'm sure the two, two of them we'll get to later. But what I think about is I remember, Noah, when you and I had, I think, our first podcast conversation in a classroom at CalArts. <laughs> Yeah. And we were. This was like, in, we were we were babies. The podcast was a baby. Everybody was a baby. Um, it was like this was like almost two years ago. I know because the podcast is over two, just over two years old. God, oh god, the world was so. As of two days ago, we're recording this Jesus. on May tenth. Wow. Two day two days ago was our was our anniversary of the first one to go out. <laughs> wow. But I remember. <laughs> yeah, good job. Brian, not me. <laughs> 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 so for the Noah, why are you clapping for yourself? That's really weird. Don't blame me. Stop, stop blaming me. Stop the way it happens now. And what are you doing? Why are you doing the wave by yourself? You can't do the wave by yourself, Noah. You I, even... I cannot believe you brought a no pro pennant. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Just you wait. Just you wait. All right. All right. So, so two years ago, we were in the classroom, and and I remember we had a conversation about something like where um, we were talking about how immersive might be less like a one sentence or even like three-tiered um, OED style definition and more like diagnosing an illness. So like, <laughs> so like there are, so there are a set of symptoms, right? There are a set of right. symptoms. And if you story, have yeah. like seven out of 10 of those symptoms, then, then you've got the disease. Oh my God. Um, I remember this. Because, because, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we talk about, um, Agency is a big thing that that we talk about, you know, and agency is something that um, is big in a lot of the early seminal immersive pieces. Sleep No More, probably the one that comes to many people's minds. I guess not first. Wow. Probably not first anymore. That's wild. Anyhow. Who do you, who do you, what do you think comes first? I know that's a digression. I, I think I, 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 I think except for Sleep No More heads... And except for people who have only been to sleep no more, I think there enough time has passed that it may be that rather than sleep no more, you think of the last thing you went to. Gotcha. Okay. I think that may be true. I don't know. It's true for well, it's been true for me for a while, but whatever. The point being, um, sleep no more has a ton of agency, right? We all we all know this. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum is something like like then she fell, where you are conducted through the piece. There is there is all there's almost no agency in that, and yet I, I think we could all agree that they are that they both have the immersive. They they both have enough of the symptoms that they are both immersive, right? So right. agency can't be um, can't be. Uh, an exclusive category for immersive, right? And yet, it's clearly a major symptom. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I think I start thinking about. I mean, Brian, you can jump in here too. I keep thinking about the conversation I had with Kent by mm. uh, a few episodes ago, because um, Kent's got his whole elements of presence theory mm. um, that, or elemental theory of presence, that's so useful. And and I was always and, and my my draw towards virtual reality has always been about presence and my draw to immersive theater is also about the same thing like i would say that you know i have a certain type of presence in sleep no more a a different type of presence and then she fell Mm -hmm. a a radically different type of presence in something like hamlet mobile or the kansas collection uh they ask different things of you but all of them are 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 ask are asking one thing that's the same which is to be here in this world and in some degrees be of this world that we're making. And when I think of 
when I think of the essential thing of, of immersive for me, it is it is presence. Brian, you're, you're, you're... Well, it's interesting. We're talking about being in the world, right? Right. You know, and like we're articulating that through the word presence. And uh, uh, I, you know, I recently talked to the folks at XLab, right? And they were talking about, for them, immersive... Now I'm talking about immersive entertainment, not just immersive theater. So right. VR, theme parks, all of it, right? Yes, yes. And them, and them they were, their perspective was that for something to be immersive, it has to be a story-based destination, right? So it's like a, basically the idea that you like go to a place in some way, whether you're going into like, you know, a, a non-presenting-based show or you're going into Star Wars land or you're going into like putting on a VR headset, you're going to a place and that's where story happens, which is a different way, but almost kind of the same thing you're talking about. But I actually want to back up for a second. Who are we defining immersive for? Because I think there's different camps here, right? I think there's mm. four creators or people that, that write about it like us because that's the bane of our existence. There's also like all the normal humans that are not in it at this level that are just now learning about this stuff. Right. And I find myself trying to explain what this work is to them many different ways and immersive just means nothing to them. So it's kind of a, an interesting problem. Yeah, well, and it's and it's and it's murky too because I think as we were alluding to before the word immersive is used in so much marketing terminology now. Oh, I mean, in in the um, um, I have a friend who works in in publishing, and I've been privy to a number of book proposals. And the word immersive shows up in these book proposals in a radically disproportionate way. I mean, like <laughs> regularly, it's very confusing. But then also in like advertising copy for novels like this is an immersive novel it's an immersive read this reading this book is an immersive experience yeah what is it what is it about drowning ourselves in something that we're so obsessed with as a culture right now right i mean we all know my argument about screens this idea of like can we let go can we slip underneath the surface of things and and go to a place where every, where all that we breathe is the world of this fiction. Mm. It, it, when Brian, when you were talking about what XLab was saying, Zay, it made me think about your observation about the names of the places in New York, right? Your, your whole deal about it's it's the McKittrick, it's it's Kingsland Ward, right? Right, right, yeah, yeah. So it, yeah, exactly. So these like for many of these immersive pieces, they aren't. They aren't described as a theater. They're described as as what the set is meant to invoke. To evoke. So when you talk to people about going to see Sleep No More, you say, "Oh, we're going to the McKittrick Hotel," which to this day many people believe is actually a hotel. But what it really is is a multi-level theater set. Like it's a set. Yeah, built in a warehouse. Right. right. Yeah. Um, I I I feel that we're sort of like layering complexity is right now. So I, I want to throw out another thing. And this is the second thing that, that is on my mind when thinking about immersive, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a VR noob. Um, I'm very new to the experience of, of VR, um, except for like my friends, like, um, Oculus Rift while like super, uh, inebriated already, <laughs> um, but but I went to the um, the virtual arcade at the uh, at the Tribeca Film Festival, and I had a number of different kinds of experiences, and and they and they sort of occupied a broad spectrum. I went into the spectrum, or one of the spectrum for me um, was 
you you sit in a chair, and the headset is put on your head. And a movie plays that is three sixty, right? So like, right. you're in a documentary or a narrative uh, or a narrative feature, and as it plays, you can like spin around in the chair and look at what's behind you and look at all this stuff, and. In 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 the space in, in the space where my brain just attaches the word immersive to something or or not on a purely instinctive and subjective level, it did not actually seem immersive to me. It was super cool and very interesting and a wild application. And um, certainly as a documentary, like the documentary features that I saw there were profoundly affecting. I, I cried many many times. Um, I mean, but I, I cry a lot. Let's let's admit that. Um, and then oh, I did this thing called, <laughs> and then I did this thing shock. called, and then I did this thing called Draw Me Close, and mm. uh, wrote about it on uh, the New York No Proscenium, and um, Noah alluded to it in a number of different places. And Draw Me Close is a collaboration between um, an English playwright whose name I, I'm gonna mess it up. You, you can look in, in the in we'll the, put it in the show notes. Next um, and the uh, Canadian Film Board and the National Theatre. And the idea is to sort of somehow blend VR and theatre. And what they've created is this VR experience where you're standing up and you're walking around and you're in this environment and it's created through like sort of iconographic um, lines and shapes, but it's clearly a house. And then it's an interaction with um, a character. And the character is both presented in the VR world also as sort of like this iconographic figure, but then there's also an actor in the same space performing that character. So that actor has lines, that actor hugs you, that actor tucks you into bed, all this stuff that's classic, classic one-on-one immersive stuff, but you're in a VR world. And that was fascinating to me. That was wild. I mean, they, they have a long way to go in a number of different dimensions, but um, that to me was undeniably an immersive work. Out of curiosity, was that immersive for you because you had the physical interaction or because you were watching a VR piece that wasn't essentially just, you know, a quick time 360 video that you had headset, headset on to watch? So, so the symptoms of the immersive disease for this, for me, um, was uh, one-on-one inter- interaction with an actor, um, agency in the space, um, the ability to move through and interact with the space, um, the space itself being—I'm uh, not sure how to say it—but like a like kind of like a character or like like both part and parcel of what the thing is. And, and, but, but, but physically, right? So like, right. not only was there like, um, like there was one, there was one moment where like you open a door and there's like a VR door that's like this iconographic um, image, but then there's also a door handle that you turn and open and move through. So it's like Did all you, of these things are happening at the same time. Brian, didn't you, are you able to talk about? Yeah, there's a thing I did, um, uh, I was just about to bring this up, at mm. CinemaCon this year, they had this demo on the floor. CinemaCon is this big movie theater industry you know, expo they have every year in Vegas. Um, and there was a lot of VR stuff this year. One of the things that was most interesting was it was essentially a demo for a, a pop-up VR installation that a company or a theater could basically put into one of their theaters. And what it was, the company wasn't just selling like a VR experience, right? They were selling 
a VR experience that would be paired with a essentially like an erector set for creating a physical set that you would then interact with. And that was basically grid based. Mm. So it could be like torn down and then popped up again quickly for different pieces. But the demo was you put on this like, you know, you'd have a backpack on your, you know, have a VR backpack and you would walk into this room and it was very, very simple, right? There was like a drawer you would pull and a doorknob and there was like a gun prop and a flashlight and things like that. And when you took the headset off, they were very, very bare bones. But the fact that you were actually interacting, like you were talking about, with physical items gave it a tactile reality. Um, that for me was kind of like made it very, very next level in terms of there's this one moment. They were all simple tricks, right? But there's one moment where you have to walk on a board on a two by four across mm. two buildings. Yeah. And oh, wow. like I've done, the, I've done the wire VR experience where you're basically just walking on like a little, you know, rubber bump. It's like, yeah, that's fine. It's scary, but whatever. I literally could not do it. My body was like, fuck mm. you. I'm not doing this because we do not want to die today. So we're not <laughs> going to do this. And it so sold me on the illusion. But the fact that I was actually interacting with real props, right? I yeah. was turning things. I was like opening actual things that made it feel real in a way that I do also associate with, you know, immersive work. Yeah. And, and, and that, and that brings up like the part of presence that immersive theater is really good at, which Kent by would call, you know, the earth element, you know, the, the physical, right. And so, so a lot of the VR stuff tends to be, you know, either ideas, air, or maybe there's the, on the film side, there's emotions, water, and then there's agency, which is on the game side, you know, fire. Uh, but the physical embodiment, you know, with a lot of the headset stuff tends to be lesser because people aren't building those erector sets. It's not like it's the void. It's often a bare room. And at most you've got a controller because so much of the emphasis has been on building the home market mm -hmm. for this stuff because everyone wanted the headsets to be the next iPhone. And it's really clear right now that the headsets that exist today are not the next iPhone. And there's so many people kind of running away from the, from the VR space that I worry that it's also going to have an impact on the immersive space because it's so clear to so many of us that the, the storytelling solution and the, the experience design solution for VR, for AR, is being, you know, skunk-worked by <laughs> the immersive theater folks. Right, figuring out what the, the human interaction is. So many people are also focused on the idea of like, oh, how can we automate this stuff? You know, how do I make an AI be the thing that delivers all this content to someone? You know, take a, you know, and I'm like, but the point is to be, you know, humans interacting. I look at something like what the guys at Mind Show do, which is they create a, a toolbox for people to play with each other. And create little stories with each other. And I say, that's the kind of social VR I want. That's the kind of thing that I want the technology to enhance is to let me with my friends come up with this, this immersive experience. And almost to the point where I wonder if on the theater side, as we're trying to figure out, well, how do we make these things sustainable? Maybe it's, maybe it's not necessarily in the long run about, well, here's this show that people come to. Maybe it's about, well, here's this thing people designed and we're going to sell the people the, the tools to do it themselves. So we're not taking the human out of the equation. We're just changing who the human maybe is. It's, it's the participants playing with each other, which means suddenly we're in, we're in the model of D&D &D modules.
right? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, may, but maybe, maybe that's where it goes. But you see stuff like that already with um, uh, uh, with Life of Us, right? The new Chris Milk project this year that mm. was basically, you, it's a, it's co-op. I think it was up to four or six or even, maybe even more players. And everybody basically, you're, I mean, I did it as a two-person configuration. And you're basically lined up next to another person and you're an amoeba. And then you kind of like evolve throughout the history of the world up through the point where you're a dinosaur and then you're a flying dinosaur and then you're a businessman and then you're like a future cyber dancer, Tron drinker, because <laughs> that's what our inevitable future is, obviously. Yes. Um, but what was great about it is that the, there's very little narrative in that. There's just like there, mm. you evolve and you like, you know, your voice does different things. Right. But the, you have a, you create a story like you were just talking about with your co-player. Right. Because you mm. guys look at each other. You can see each other. You can interact. And much like you get in an escape room, right, where the story is how you and your friends collaborated to get out or to die, right? It's the same kind of thing happening. I think that kind of social VR is very real and we're primed to. But one thing you said earlier, like, is VR going to turn people off? I think the opposite is actually happening because people talk about VR. The great dream is essentially the holodeck. That's what people want. Right. We're decades away. From there, right? You can't get there. People have gone to v, uh, these VR things like, it's going to be like this. And like, no, it's not. I'm sorry. But they can go to an immersive show that might give them something close. They can go to Harry Potter World or Star Wars Land and maybe get something that's kind of close. Like, I think it's turning people on to the idea of these things mm. and maybe may get more regular humans interested in the idea of like going into a warehouse and stepping into a fictional world where it's just not something that was on their radar before. You know, it's it's funny because I think this this embodied presence thing, which is um, um, it's uh, there's also there's a book called Immersive Theaters that I keep harping on because it's sort of like the um, the like early excavation um, uh, anthology of all the stuff that was going on in in England. Um, and it walks across the worlds of theater and dance and um, installation art. And this thing of embodied presence is something that um, that she talks about a lot in that book. And I think that there's some sort of weird, or not weird, but a, a funny paradox of uh, these fictional, created, imaginary, often dreamlike worlds giving us a feeling of embodied presence through all of these different symptoms. And I, 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 I would argue, and I actually feel pretty adamant about this, is that I don't think story for me is on the list of things that are essential for immersive work. And it, it, it's partially because story is not an essential part of any of the things that immersive work comes from. It's, it's not essential for theater. It's not essential for dance. It's not essential for immersive art. It's not essential for film um, because you have great um, primary examples of seminal works in all of those mediums that are emphatically not about story. But I think that the thing about immersive work is that it's about this world. It's certainly about environment. In some way, it's about environment. And in some way, it's about an environment that, that in some way, even if it's not agency, demands for you to be there and to, in order to experience what it even is. I mean, the thing I've been thinking about as we've been talking about VR and all these like really huge things is uh, Broken Bone Bathtub. Because in a sense, yeah. Broken Bone Bathtub is, um, and I'm, I'm making quotey fingers here, just uh, one woman show in a bathtub. And what 
turns it into something else is partially just um, uh, Siobhan. Siobhan is um, incredibly engaging in her performance. But there's also the Michael Tara Garver um, uh, uh, dictum that an immersive work must cast the audience member as something. Um, and I, I was very resistant to that when she first said it to me because I, I felt like it wasn't necessarily the case. But certainly um, in Broken Bone Bathtub, because of the idea is that you are the people who are letting her take a bath in your bathtub because she has to get back. She's broken, blah, 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 all the backstory. Um, and that creates this intimate space. It, cre- it, it, it drops the fourth wall or, or it puts the fourth wall behind you or something. Um, and that creates that embodied presence that we're talking about, even though there's a relatively low level of interaction, although what's there is so intimate that it sort of blasts everything away. Um, and there's very little agency and there's definitely a script that is followed, et cetera. Yeah, and what, what agency there, there goes to the audience goes to maybe a, a couple of participants, yeah. uh, some of whom may or may not wind up accidentally dropping the soap, but we won't talk about that. Um, the, um, Unconscious the, agency? No, 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 no. Soap is a slippery thing, and you don't want to drop it in front of a bunch of people um, who then wonder if you did it on purpose and then write about it in LA Weekly. But I don't know what this is talking about the, in the third person. Um, the the thing the thing about that about that piece is, you know, the she is super engaging, and there's a there's a there's a at least the version I saw there's the beginning of a kind of a conversational uh, dynamic with the audience there, and that's something that comes up in a lot of great pieces out here in LA. Um, a lot of the work that Capital W does um, in Hamlet Mobile and, and the Drum, mm-hmm. I'm sure mm-hmm. Red Flags, which is coming up at, at Fringe. You know, very conversational based. And what they've discovered is that you can sort of set the conditions up for, you know, the the scene or even the night by, you know, kind of bounding what people are going to wind up talking about. And they've seen people follow kind of the internal script logic of of the show that they're trying to create. And which makes me really think about what a great director does with actors, which is set up the conditions for them to perform the scene, and then the actors hopefully bring their best effort to that scene and elevate what even the director intended in the first place. But I want to roll back to something Brian said, a question about, you know, sort of the code switch idea. I was like, well, who are we talking about this for when? Right, like, and and the meaninglessness of immersive, and and Zay, you touched on it in terms of the the book thing, you know, just the fact that everyone just and I was making a joke about you know being sriracha, people just splashing this world around because as all three of us know, we all get pitched things as being immersive all the time. That from from the the description alone, we can tell there's no way this thing is immersive. Right. And maybe on a rare occasion, rarely, maybe one percent of the time we're wrong. And I there's no way to stop people from using the term. And that's sort of the thing I'm facing right now. Right. Is like I get pushback from some folks who are like, well, don't be militant about it or like let these people into the tent, too. And for me, it is very important that this stuff like Then She Fell, like Capital W's work, like what the Speakeasy Society does, like, you know, 
I'm not going to do the laundry list because we'd be here forever. But it's very important to me that this kind of stuff that is fragile, and, and let's be honest, it is fragile in a real way, that it finds the audience who's looking for it and that those folks aren't kind of led like lemmings over to, not that you guys are lemmings, you're not lemmings, uh, led like lemmings into, if, if anyone's a lemming, it's me, I'm the one that falls. Unless you like Sriracha, because he hates you. I don't, that's not about, look, it's not about the rooster sauce. Um, that they're led into something that is using it as a marketing term and then everyone's suddenly disappointed. Um, and that people are just sort of cynically trying to find a way, well, how do I fill some seats up? in my theater, which is old and dying, that the, and, and appeal to these 20-somethings and, you know, hipster 30-something-year-olds who are looking for the next big thing. I'll just slap immersive on, on the front. But there is some level where, you know, maybe a show doesn't take me fully there, but it's, there's a tingle, you know? There are some shows that I go to where it's like, okay, I'm not really on the same emotional plane. The veil is still there. But but there's but there are symptoms, right, Zay? Like the, the immersive symptoms are there, but I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't call it immersive, but but maybe someone else would. And for me, that's the difference between big eye and little eye, or big eye and and deep eye. Um in that the stuff that that we're we're searching for that brings that presence, it's it's a it, it might be a subcategory of this much larger genre that transcends technology and transcends, you know, if, if, if film was the queen of the arts who managed to pull in music and theater and visual arts and, and in, you added this new thing in terms of non you know, linear editing and the non-linear linear editing, then is immersive this thing that brings in all that and adds the agency of gaming and adds the embodiment of a theme park and suddenly we're, we're in this bigger, broader field, this, this larger world. And, and the thing that sort of is the core of our obsession is a vital beating heart of it but isn't all there is. That's that's what I'm grappling yeah. with. It's it's funny, you know what that makes that makes me th- think about, or I guess it's just a question, because uh, Brian was talking about when people think about what they want from VR, what they want is the holodeck, and for sure I would like the holodeck. That sounds great. Um, and I wonder what is the difference between is there a difference? Is a holodeck the ideal endpoint form of immersive art? And if it's not, then what's the difference? Ooh, hmm. that's a good question. I mean, because the... there's there's um, just to finish that thought because there's something about there's something about 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 the struggle that I find really fascinating, and there's something about when that veil, I really like that notion of the veil that you brought up, but that, I mean, to, to take it from a, these are the symptoms and then this is what immersive is, to something more emotional and present, when that veil is pierced, when that veil is lifted or shattered or burned or destroyed or you're beckoned through, and it happens in a, 
tremendously lo-fi kind of way. Um, I mean, I saw this piece uh, about a month ago called You Are Star, and it was a dude in an apartment with a tremendously lo-fi, hand-drawn um, uh, graphic novel and a bunch of LED lamps controlled by Ableton Live. And it was one of the most amazing things I've ever experienced. And you could do it at a friend's apartment for 30 bucks. And it put, pulled me right through the veil. And I've also seen gigantic, huge, big things that I've been brought to that are just like not the thing. And not the thing, not because of poor execution, but just because they're not the thing. Or yeah, poor execution. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, when we think about the holodeck conventionally, you know, we usually think about, I mean, obviously, Star Trek The Next Generation, maybe when Data becomes Sherlock Holmes and squares off against Moriarty and then Moriarty takes on the, over the ship or when Picard becomes Dixon Hill and like, you know, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like Data, Data is LARPing and Moriarty is in an immersive, is in an immersive piece. Yeah, no, no, no. The, the, that, that's definitely that's definitely true. But like, but let, and let's go there. And, and the data is LARPing, and I think what's interesting to me about those is that we always saw it. You know, they, it was an excuse for the writers to bring on a bunch of other actors and have them be the antagonists. But I wonder, there would always also be sometimes those little glimpses where, like, you know, for five seconds at the beginning of an episode, it's like, oh, they were all dressed up as, like, Robin Hood and his Merry Men because mm-hmm. Picard decided he wanted to play Robin Hood. And, like, Worf's there as Little John or whatever the hell it was. Or Will's, no, Worf was Will Scarlet, I think, which is what's really funny about it. But let's not, <laughs> let's not talk about my Star Trek nerd retreat. And maybe I don't refer to my mom as Maman sometimes, uh, like I did this morning. <laughs> Um, uh, to her, to her face as it were. Look, if you guys start talking about Deep State, Space Nine, I'm walking out. Okay, we're not going to talk about Deep Space Nine. <laughs> wow, that, that's as far as we can go. We can't even go. Wow, that's wow. Oh, we're not. No, no, no one say the, no one say the V word. I no know. I was usually people no, let you at least go to, to the V word. My goodness. Before they stop, but but, yeah. but here's kind of limit the scope of the conversation. Here's 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 the, here's the point I'm trying to get at is that is that it's always assumed that it's. It's PVE. It's Picard mm. versus the computer. It's Data versus the computer. But the glimpses we sometimes get were it's them playing with each other. And for me, what I love about this stuff at the heart is when I'm in a scene with another perf- with a performer. Oh, I just said it with another performer. Yeah. When I'm in a scene with another performer and I'm playing the role. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil anything here, but uh, Annie Lesser's apartment eight, which was remounted as the chalet up at Overlook, um, the first time I did that one, I I instantly found a character to be, and I played out that very short piece as not myself, but as a character. But for me, as someone who used to be an actor. Finding a character isn't about denying myself. It's about shutting down the normal ego talk and accessing a different part of who I am and letting that run rough shot, you know, rough for a while and then putting it back in the box. 
And sometimes at immersives, I get to do that. And I'm never more happier than when I, I find what the scene wants to be about and I play the scene with another person, which is why I'm not interested in PVE in VR. I'm interested in social experiences that let me do, you know, you know, cooperate with with other people, then the same thing's true. Like that's what I'd want out of the holodeck. I wouldn't want to be like, oh, let's just fight another boss battle. It'd be like, well, okay, let's play superheroes. And maybe we'll have the computer be, you know, the the bad guys for a second. But but it, that's not what's interesting. It's not about beating up the Joker. It's about, you know, what Batman and Superman are doing. Or if it's really gonna be about beating up the Joker, well then can someone play the Joker while I play Batman? Because that's what I want. I want I want drama, you know, and you I want to see what the drama comes from. It's it's funny because that that uh, what you just said made me realize um, one of the things that didn't work about Draw Me Close. It wasn't the form; like the form was interesting and has somewhere to go. It was that the the actor clearly had no experience or training in doing one on ones because. Mm-hmm. Like what you're talking about, like like that it's not it's not just PVE. So it's like it's like I think for for people who are into the immersive experience and want that that veil pierced, it's not just about someone perfectly creating the abyss. It's about the abyss gazing also. And that mm. takes someone who has who really knows what they're doing in this environment, so that like, like this, this, this one-on-one acting, this, um, this very, these very intimate performances. It's a performance that they can repeat, um, rock solid on point, two times a night, six days a week, like a boss. But also that each um, audience member really feels that presence. So it's not just your presence, but your presence is created by their presence, you know? Like, like you want to experience the revolt in Westworld. That's what we want to see, you know? That also gets to something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of VR versus, you know, this other idea of immersive that we're talking about here, right? Is when you when you watch a movie, you are basically, you know, bonding with the character that you're watching from a, you know, from a third-person perspective, right? When you see a VR piece, if it is the holodeck in the future, right? If it's, you know, if it's at that level, then it will feel like you're actually in a real place and doing a thing. But right now and for any time in the, you know, the near future, we're still going to be like watching a screen, even if it is like an avatar of a friend that you're playing against, you're still going to be kind of like having that same detached viewpoint where in a real world, like in a, you know, IRL immersive piece, right? There's that physicality cannot be obtained any other way. And there's like an emotional immediacy to that, that to me is like, completely unique unto itself. What about the Pandora robots, though? Right? Like, I just... When you're talking about that in any other way, right? And then that video we've seen recently of Avatar Land that, like, Ricky Brigante uh, put up from Inside the Magic uh, of, of, like, the ride, particularly at night, and suddenly there's that that very fluid uh, Avatar shaman character, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's beyond Uncanny Valley. It's like both amazing and sort of completely horrifying all at the same time and that it, it looks like they've just stuck this poor alien in this in this ride and it can't escape right like that so so maybe the, the imagineers have that stuff going on i don't know well no, i think anything that's real world anything that's physical 
can't has that potential. Yeah. You know, like, it, and it, like, the fact that that thing is so fucking creepy. Like, I think all of us saw, like, the commercial. We're like, oh, man, that's, like, some weird, that's some strange CG. Then it's like, oh, no, that's action animatronic. You're like, oh, no, what have they done? It's yeah. like, <laughs> and, uh, there's something, <laughs> like, <they> unleashed. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw, I saw one of the Mickey heads or the mini heads blink at Disneyland, right? And it's like it's I think it's like a digital blink that the eyes do and mm. like I wanted to run screaming. And cuz the thing was the first time I saw it it was on the Mr. Potato Head at Midway Madness in California Adventure. And that thing freaks me the fuck out, right? And like the first time I saw it I think there was an actor uh operating it that day cuz I think there's an option for an actor to like banter with the crowd and cuz it was just doing its like routine. It was like blah 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 and then suddenly it was like Hi, little girl, because it was talking to this like child that looked like he was lost. I was like, oh, where's your family? And I was like, oh, this is wrong. That or like I've somehow entered into the minds, the child, the mind of the child and seeing like how they see the world, like some kind of weird psychic thing. And I was like, this demon spud is asking this little girl if she's lost. This is like some Stephen King level shit here at California Adventure. And I turned to my friend and said, man, five years from now, they're going to stick that technology on the heads of the of the mice walking around. Yeah, it was 18 months later or less that the first Mickey head that could talk and blink was walking around the park. And and part of me loves it, but most of me is just scared, deeply scared. It's like the most, it's like something out of Grant Morrison's darkest corporate nightmares. And I say this as someone who like is desperate to get into Star Wars land before it opens, right? You know, to like see whatever weird wonders pop up there. But there's, it's scary. I'm scared. What were we talking about again? The Brian, I, there's I like a really you. good like corporate haunt like idea. You basically it starts out when you're going to like a happy Disneyland, <laughs> and then they start talking and then they kill you. Yeah, no, seriously. Um, but so I, I derailed that one successfully. I, I apologize. Um, <laughs> that was really good though. Yeah, it's. What, I think it's. What, I think it's what the audience <laughs> listens for. Honestly, it's like when when something is going to get Noah doing something really weird. Um, Brian, you were. You were talking about the embodiment that you can't get from the screens. We were talking about screens versus embodiment. Yeah, ultimately, I think any kind of like physical experience, and that literally can mean anything from a weird animatronic thing at, at Avatar, you know, at the, you know Pandora, to to the to other things we've been talking about. But I think that's there's just an immediacy to it, and I think that gives you an emotional ex- you can access the audience's emotions they can get to me easier with less i think oftentimes yeah. than you could do through a screen you're talking about apartment eight i saw the chalet at overlook for the first time and you know that was an interesting show because i did not necessarily have intent going into it as a participant you know i just kind of like found it along the way but without spoiling anything like after the the, the majority of the show is over there's like a last final reveal um, that for me was like devastating. Like I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. And that just would not happen through a screen. It was basically the power of walking into what felt like a transformed physical space. You yeah. know, that basically, and it undercut everything I thought I knew and like, but it worked because it was immediate, because it was actually there, because it was physical. Yeah. And that show, the tr- the, the amazing thing about it, and, and we'll talk offline, you and I about this one, because that's, that's one of the goals tonight when we're not recording. Um, what I love is like so far I've tracked your career of going to this stuff and you've been such a fan of, of the stuff that, you know, 
has a lot of lore around it or like asks you to like really invest in in the lore of the world in order to unlock everything and in that one you go in blind and cold and it sends you right down the rabbit hole it just like boop, drops you right in yeah. and like you're best not knowing anything and it can take you there and i've watched it take so many people there and it does it in 10 minutes it's like it's like a an injectable drug, and then it leaves you kind of like freaked out for quite some time afterwards. So she's got some tickets left. Probably when you're listening to this, maybe the, like there were like 32 when we were recording. There may be like maybe like 12 left by the time this airs. <laughs> so like snatch those up if you can. Um, because I just talked about the lore stuff. Let's talk alternate reality for a second, because I think what we've just proven in the 46 minutes we've been doing this so far is that we're probably not going to come to detente on what gets to be immersive and what doesn't get to be immersive. But let's talk about this coinage I've been dropping about ARX, alternate reality experience. And I know I kind of wish Albert's not available right now, but like I know he had a, a pretty big pushback uh, to me because he he's part of a set, you know, in, in a certain game design set, you know, that they're, 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 I don't, I don't want to characterize it as attached to, but like alternate reality games are a thing. They've been a thing for a long time and people are more than happy to, you know, call a, a fairly wide range of experiences, <laughs> um, uh, alternate reality games. And after I did Have You Seen Jake um, and sort of saw where they were going with it and I was having conversations um, and I think it was actually like the, the, the last night of that, like the literal last night of Have You Seen Jake, uh, their final night, we were up there in Idlewild and I, and I was having a conversation at like one o'clock in the morning or something with like Taylor from Haunting. And, you know, we were getting into the idea of that it's not, it's not really something you can win. Like, have you seen Jake at the end of it? You, it it's revealed that you've been looking for this guy for, you know, some people have been looking at the guy for months, had gotten written into the meta narrative of the story. Others of us weren't written into the meta narrative of the story. That's a whole other thing to unpack. But at the end, you find out that he's been dead this entire time and that you had just sort of repressed the memory. And this was you coming to terms with the fact that your friend was gone and wasn't coming back. Now, there's there's different definitions of of game and in in it, this is me characterizing an argument that that I am not a holder of but I appreciate which is there's there's a lot of people who in game design who are attracted to a lot of writing about uh, ludens about play and I love that because seeing the world through a lens of play is amazing um, and so I think part of the pushback on not calling them games is that, there's a bigger sense of what a game can be and a, and a, and a bigger sense of, you know, a playful approach to, to life or even a, a sense of play permeating a lot of what we do in the culture. And I think that's an amazing frame that people, that people would do well to kind of take up. But attention here, um, attention when we're talking about alternate reality, attention here is exactly what you were talking about, Brian, about immersive earlier, which is what about the people for whom aren't initiated into this, into this stuff, right? And the reason why I went and started calling Jake an experience, and then I think the Speakeasy Society took up experience for Kansas as well, was because 
when a lot of people think about games, they think about sides and winners and losers and conflict and a contest. And in my best, you know, world of game theory, dive into IndieCade with an open mind, love something like Gone Home, get offended when people call things walking simulators self, um, I want to push back on the people who refuse to accept something like Gone Home, uh, which is a, an amazing computer game that you know doesn't have a, a shoot button or anything like that. It just unfolds like an immersive theater piece. And indeed, it was informed by immersive theater and indeed has informed immersive theater at this point. Um, I, I, I have no problem calling that a game. I have no problem calling something like the Stanley Parable a game. But inside the gaming world... Uh, there are people who call those things walking simulators because they refuse to recognize this larger Luden's sense of play. But the baggage that comes with game, this turned into a rant, sorry, the baggage that comes with game, uh, and then I'll leave it to the floor, is I watch what happens at something like Kansas Collection, which is the Speakeasy Society's long-form show that's been, been unfolding for a few months, and people start, you know, it, it, it tracks you under different things, it gives you a faction, but without anything else to do between episodes necessarily, people start factionalizing and think that they have to play the game against other players who have different factions, and suddenly you've got conflict where none was intended. Whereas if we take out the G word and talk about it as an experience, then it's a little less clear so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, apologies for the rant, because this is really, like, help Noah figure out this stuff. But, but you know, Brian, it's, it's funny. Oh, no, Brian, go. No, no, Zane. Zane. Oh, go for it. So I, I am not a person who is a gamer, and I'm not sure that I've ever experienced any alternative reality um, anything um, although I am a person who, I mean, I, I think my, my favorite game experience is probably walking through the countryside in Fallout 3 or something. Um, <laughs> and uh, what, as you were talking about this, what I was thinking about was, was my whole, because I could do a very similar rant about story. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in, in New York, we live in a world where someone can write without irony on HowlRound um, that uh, someone wrote this article a year ago, a yearish ago on HowlRound. HowlRound is this sort of like roundup. It, it, it's one of the only places on the internet that is a roundup of various articles on theater. Um, it's it because theater people are sort of famously tech confused, um, <laughs> but but this guy wrote but this but this guy wrote like like um, a list of five things and one of them was it ha- it has to get across story and he was defining immersive and, and yeah it was one of his things yeah 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 there was like a list of five things and one of them was it has to tell a story. Um, which is funny because uh, he had like four examples and three of them had nothing even vaguely like a story. It, like it has a story in the same way that like like your your first year BFA playwriting instructor will try to convince you that Waiting for Godot has a story. It's sort of like that sort of thing, um, which is a profoundly backwards way of 
of understanding both theater and play scripts and is also a tremendously limiting way of understanding why these things are effective. And as you were talking about about use of the word game and the, the, the derision that a lot of people um, use when they say, um, what was the term? A, a walking, what was it? A walking simulator. A walking simulator, which... I don't know, to me that sounds sort of relaxing right now. Um, <laughs> um, well, you do like that part of Fallout 4, and then Fallout 4 often turns into a walking simulator man, if you want to take that frame I, up. My, my favorite moment of almost any video game I have ever played um, was walking through the countryside in Fallout 3 and some dude running, like, like really far away, screaming with some other guy chasing him and shooting him. And all of a sudden I thought, that was when the veil, that was when the veil tore. I'm like... I am in this world, and this world exists independent of me. It was oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, so I guess all of all, all of what I'm saying is my reaction to you talking about this notion of dropping the word game and exchanging the word experience um, resonates with me on the level of uh, story is something that needs to be, in my opinion set aside when trying to understand what immersive is because so many of this so much of this work comes does not have a story anything like a story and it also comes from forms that don't tend to have anything like a don't tend to need anything like a story um like uh dance in the last uh 105 years or um theater in the last 90 years or art installations ever well and and part part of the thing there i always see is that sometimes when the artist isn't imposing a linear narrative or even a non-linear narrative on what's going on it invites the audience to create a story of their own to emerge because humans i feel are inherently you know storytelling creatures and, and that's not a bad thing. That's like one of the powers. Is it like, I'm going to give you this sandbox. You right. tell me what the story is. And, and, but if you've done your, if, if you have a point, you've embedded values, you've embedded ideas into there and you let people kind of pick those up and put them, put them into relationship with each other. And suddenly the point you were trying to make is getting across. Yeah, I have to say the some of the immersive theater stuff that I found to be most personally moving have been pieces that don't have traditional fixed narrative. Obviously, that's most of them. That's not the point. But there are moments and beats, and more importantly, there's room for you to bring your own bullshit, whatever it is, perspective, like life issue, whatever in your mind, mm-hmm. and you end up taking a story away with you from the piece. You know what I mean, so it does it doesn't provide conventional story. But I do think those do end up often being story experiences, just like watching, you know, a piece of ballet can be a story experience because that's your the emotional story that you, what you kind of go through. The gaming thing is really interesting because when I try to explain this to some of my colleagues, there's a lot of gaming writers at, you know, at the place where I work. And I talk about immersive theater pieces. They go like, oh, so it's just like a video game. And like that's like the the immediate. It's like if there's the the, the theater group has like one perspective. It's like oh, well, it's not like a game. And the game people are like oh, it's just everything's a game. You just don't understand. You're not enough of a gamer. <laughs> that's so um, funny. <laughs> which I mean, truth is, I'm not as much of a gamer as as they are. But you know, you also get this conversation about why you know oh, that's my cat Ruby, everybody. 
Um, uh, but the whole, the thing with the ARG, ARX thing that I think I find difficult is that Ultra Reality Games, the first one I ever got deep in was Year Zero, like 2005, the Nine Inch Nails one, right? Mm-hmm. Pop-up okay. events, you know, live quote-unquote theater events have always been a part of ARGs in one form or another. So it's almost like we're, like that term could be used to describe Jake or Tension or anything else that takes that form and could kind of be fine just being an alternate reality game. Um, and I think the point about there not being a, a goal or something like that is, is well taken. Um, but I think the problem is with both of those nomenclatures ultimately is that these are experience. Those are reductive terms, right? If you right. say it's an ARG, it's like oh, that's a marketing bullshit thing, right? You say an ARX, like that's a Mountain Dew brand. I don't know what that is, right? And I think these things Mountain Dew Arcs <laughs> now in a horchata lime green with sriracha, <laughs> probably yeah. Um, but um, I think that's ultimately they can offer a much wider audience a lot more than either of those those names kind of infers. And mm-hmm. my fear is always that, like, what's the best way to get the most number of audiences engaged with something that could be truly transformative for them, right? Yeah. We, we all talk about these works because we're passionate about them. We think they have tremendous value, both artistically and just as, like, as, you know, as artistic meaning to themselves and the way they can affect people. Um, so how do you go and get that word out, right? See, I, I, think, I think that, and that is the thing we face all the time, right? You know, that, that's the reason why NoPro exists in the first place was like, how do we build an audience for this work so that we can make more of this work and have it be sustainable? And every day it is the question that we face. Every time I talk to a creator, it's about how can I afford to do this? How can I afford to do this and pay my actors? How can I afford to do this and someday pay myself? How can I someday, beyond that, pay us all a living wage? You know, get the rentals, et cetera, et cetera, and not have this be a moment that just gets blown off the face of the earth. And the, the problem, the glory of it, is that you it's the matrix. No one can tell you what it is. You have to see it for yourself. The problem is when we talk about it, and particularly that I word or the alternate reality words, or even I was reminded earlier today that virtual reality was just the West Coast term for artificial reality back in the 80s, right? I saw that being quoted. It's like, it was like in the New York Times, it's like called virtual reality, what West Coasters call artificial reality, like in that great New York Times, like how dare they define something in Berkeley? We're in New York. Sorry, Zay. Sorry. But you're from Berkeley, so you get <laughs> Man, it. Man, I, I grew up in Berkeley and I live in New York. I, I feel it in my soul. Yeah. yeah. Um, point being that um, we can't tell them. We seem like madmen when we tell them, like, we're so lucky that Westworld exists now. Yeah. Because we can say it's, uh, and I do this all the time, probably down on the show. I'm like, I used to tell people it was like falling off the Peter Pan ride at Disneyland. Now I say it's like Westworld, but you cannot fuck or kill the actors because they're not robots. Are people sad or excited when they hear that? I worry about the ones who are sad. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm confused by the ones who are excited. Um, it's it, it's funny because as, as, as you're talking about this, Noah, I because I, I was thinking back to what Brian was talking about, which is what immersive means for who, and I I would hope that I mean I am not an immersive practitioner, but I am a writer, and one of the most destructive things one can do when writing a first draft is making some sort of category decision about what you're doing. 
I mean, mm-hmm. that's a that's like maybe a third draft decision, but maybe it's only really a marketing decision. And and when when you, I mean, the the early people, like the thir- like the third rail third rail projects type folks, um, almost have the um, uh, I want to use the word privilege, but it's so loaded. Um, they're they're in a place where. It's it's completely okay for them to say, well, we don't really even know what immersive is. People use that word for our stuff. We don't even know what it means. We just do our thing. Um, whereas someone coming up now might more have to contend with the term. Um, but I, I wonder if defining the word immersive is n- probably not useful for practitioners, at least on the on the moment of creation level, because um, that's when you're just figuring out what you want to say and how you want to say it, and la 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 la. Um, but as gatekeepers, um, it, for us, it, it can be very torturous. I mean, I, I, I have had to say no to people who I whose work I love, whose work I adore, who, who I really, um, dig. And all I can say is we have a readership and we have a community of people who are looking for a kind of thing. And I want to gesture wildly in the direction of anything that seems like that thing. And I want to make sure that they're confident that whatever it is we're blathering on about how wonderful it is, is at least in the ballpark of that feeling they had when they first became initiated into this world. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's 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 the heart of it. That's exactly what... I face all the time and you know I'll take an example like a, a company like Forlarks who you know walked away from the term whose work is beautiful and whose work they're, they're a company here in Los Angeles who do what they call junkyard operas they were they were gracious enough to host us when we had Marissa from Third Rail come out and do a workshop they're wonderful people they're amazing artists they do incredible movement theater usually mining like classical Greek stuff as, as the heart of what they do. They just did a piece at the Getty Villa workshop piece about the Homeric hymns. It was like watching a live action version of Beyonce's uh, Lemonade structure, uh, but it's all Homeric hymns. It was incredible. It was like it was like 12 oh, music videos of, of Homeric hymns. And I was like, what is, this is amazing. This is like one of the best nights of theater I've had. It's theater. Uh, and it's amazing and it's beautiful and you don't, you know, things don't need to be immersive to have us love them or be excited about them. We've just got this really weird, you know, little, little flickering flame that we're trying to keep alive. Um, and it can be hard because we say like, sorry, that's like not in the, that's not in the wheelhouse. wheelhouse. Occasionally I'll put something in the social media and be like, oh, we love these people. They're amazing. It's not immersive, but it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. They like amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. And it would be easier, like if we were trying to like, you know, get clicks a go-go, it'd be way easier if we could just be totally nonchalant with the term and just do find something that was popular, put it in and just write about it all the time and then boom, you know, blow it up. But that's not the mission either, and it would be a massive betrayal of the audience, a, a, a fundamental betrayal of the audience. It's not the mission. It's not the mission. Sorry, I just got passionate. Yeah, no, curation is a <laughs> huge part of the entire the entire game, right? Yeah. Like, if you're going to go and, like, what you're going to choose to talk about, 
Uh, and that's not a value judgment about whether there's something good or bad. Right. Right. So if you're going right. to highlight within a certain context, there is a contract there. You yeah. can't just talk about everything. Yeah. Now, that being said, there are these other walls that, that we, we get to break down, like the VR wall, or like we start thinking about things like people, uh, you see this on Everything Immersive all the time, people are constantly asking about Black Rabbit Rose, which is the Houston Brothers restaurant bar around the corner from No Vacancy on Hollywood Boulevard that, you know, No Vacancy be my favorite one of their bars. Uh, And it's this space that used to be one restaurant and now it's been turned into a a magic um, performance spot and then a little tiny restaurant that looks like it's from the 1930s but actually serves Thai food. And like mm. Brian and I wandered in there after we after we had you know subjected ourselves to the the, the Star Wars cantina that then popped up in LA. Speaking of not immersive, exactly. Well, I mean you're on the set, but like you know, I would I would more and I don't usually smash stuff, but I would say that in a, in a certain from a certain point of view, to use Obi Wan's phrase. Yeah, scum and villainy's immersive and that you're there in a physical space and it looks kind of like the thing that you were told it would look like. It's not good. Um, and if it wasn't for the fact that the 501st, you know, the, the wonderful Star Wars cosplayers were there in force when we were there, it would have been bad. Like, just straight up bad. This is a good object lesson real quick. Um, I would say it was not immersive because basically it was just set a set right yeah nothing else about the environment including the food on the menu was actually part of the world so it basically kept you at arm's length it prevented you from falling into the world it actually it would have been easier if they weren't serving anything yes like if if we walked in there and there was no food or drink options and it was just like pay us twenty dollars we'll give you a t-shirt at the end you know like that's how we're justifying people walking through and i was like it's an exhibit Right, because like think about something like Meow Wolf, which is also a platform, right? Like you build, someone goes and builds a platform for this stuff. You know, like sometimes you walk through Disneyland and it's like this is a really neat thing. And like, yeah, that, that that's immersive for a second, but it's not fighting itself. And I think Scum and Villainy was definitely fighting itself. Anyway, the point was I was talking about you know Black Rabbit Rose. People in EI are always asking, you know, like how is it? How is it? How is it? It's it's feeling, it's not an immersive joint. It'd probably be amazing for someone to do an immersive in it. It could be a platform for immersive, uh, but it definitely at least like sends you into a space. People tell me about the Cicada Club here, or Cicada, how do you say it? Here in, in LA, and it's kind of got a little time warp thing going on, and that it's like, you know, uh, swing dance and some other stuff happening. And these places can like, you know, move you into a mindset for a while. And they aren't necessarily, they aren't theater. But they they catch you up. They take you somewhere. They 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 bring you into a different mindset. Like Clifton's, I love Clifton's, and it would be an amazing platform for an immersive. Um, and it's the kind of stuff that people who love immersive will gravitate towards. Um, so in a sense, that stuff's kind of in our wheelhouse because we're nerds of a certain feather. But it still doesn't necessarily hit hit the big button. Right. Not. I think we're talking about food because we're hungry. <laughs> I didn't have dinner. There's a great immersive Taco Bell location. You <laughs> joke, but like when I had to go to the Taco Bell headquarters, they had just brought their original unit and, and they were trying to figure out what to do with it and considering whether or not they were going to make a museum and are on their property in Irvine. And I really thought it would be kind of cool if they like did it at the pop-up restaurant where they would like serve it old school. And yeah. That's the kind of nerd I am. I love that old fast food junk. Um, <laughs> probably mostly, most of my DNA is probably manufactured out of it or something. I don't know. Um, 
any other we we derailed successfully. Well, this train has come to a halting stop. Um, <laughs> gentlemen, is there is there anything in this uh, in this rambling disaster of a podcast we call fun uh, that you think we should we should touch on? Um, the only there the, the third thing I was going to talk about that just didn't get there was never a moment to fold it in, so I'm just going to force it in right now. Um, oh, do it, do it, do it. Is uh, uh, and this is just a quick thing. This is just me. This is just curiosity, partially because this thing is called No Proscenium. So Third Rail Projects, which is my favorite band, has a new piece called Ghostlight that is going to be that is at Lincoln Center. It's at a theater right. in Lincoln Center, and. Right. It's in a theater where I've, I've seen many, many plays. It is a theater. It's a thrust stage. Um, but it's a theater. It is a traditional theater. And I have it on good authority that it is going to be all kinds of third rail projects-y. And I have no doubt that it will be. But what 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 I'm curious to see is how it is a traditional theater space is transformed into something that has the symptoms um because um there is a man i can't remember the exact words but um there's there's this that no proscenium is it's a funny word because sometimes I, I i say to people like i'm at some piece and we're talking and they're saying well why are you here and i'm like well um i'm an editor of this thing called no proscenium and i would say 60% of the time, they have no idea what the word proscenium means. Yeah, it's it's a terrible name. Like, let's be honest. It's what I could Google out. Because, like, cause just, like, immersive, an immersive theater were gone. And then I was like, no proscenium. I was like, yeah, this stuff has no proscenium. That's fantastic. And, you know, when it was just, like, newsletter for, like, you know, 15 people in Los Angeles, it was fine. I handed a business card to a filmmaker at VRLA. And they were like, and they were in line for Mind Show, and they were like, "Oh, what's a proscenium?" Right. And that got me really angry because it was like, "You should." Didn't your teachers teach you anything? You know, <laughs> come on. It's a proscenium march. Theater. But it's a terrible <laughs> name. Um, it's a terrible name. But what that's, why, that's why that's why the Facebook group, the Everything Immersive, that's a way better name. It's it's, it's pretty good. But I'm very I'm, I'm, you know. I'm very stoked to see Third Rail, uh, a group like Third Rail Projects, go at. A theater space because I have never seen a an immersive piece in a traditional theater space, and I'm so curious. I'm so super duper curious to see how this space is transformed with a theater full of people. It seems well. Are like they are they definitely magic. are they definitely intending to cram everyone into the seats or are they are they doing flights of people through the space because it's it's any, any, it's unclear i mean there's only one seating i don't know if every seat is going to be filled um it's got like very classic immersive um warnings of you'll be getting up you'll be sitting down you'll be moving around for most of the piece you may be alone la 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 it's got all yeah. the classic stuff and i i have i have I have, um, but folks say it's going to be full on third rail projects. I mean, the folks. So we, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to see what they yeah. do to a traditional theater space, because if, if, if it can be done, then it can be done by 
many, many people. I just wonder, I just, but I just wonder how much can that space be, the, the show is called Ghost Light, mm-hmm. and for those who are not initiated into theater, a ghost light is the light that you put on a stage at the end of a show. It's usually just a pole with a bare bulb, and you turn it on, and, you know, legendarily, it's to keep the ghosts away. But really, it's so that if when someone comes into the theater, because the theater is naturally usually going to be dark no matter what time of day it is, uh, if you haven't turned the main lights on, and you're on your way to go turn the main lights on, you need some light to be able to see and around. And there's stuff all over the place. Exactly. It's a da- it's a dangerous space to be walking around without it. So, so my instant assumption is that, like, you know, it's a it's a piece, it's a meta-theater piece, and so you're going to be wandering around a theater that's, you know, either before or after on its way to the creation of a show, and that's, that, that's sort of bounded. Like, the question for me is, you know, can you, can any space that would be a regularly recurring space like a theater or like a soundstage, could that be reliably turned into different kinds of experiences or are we stuck with site-specific style relationships to pre-existing spaces? I don't know. I mean, I'm... I'm, yeah. I'm this is why I'm curious. I mean, I, yeah. I wonder... I mean, even if you can, tra- I mean, if, if you can add a, uh, if you can add a, a, a layer of, of presence and meaning, even just using the space as the space, that would be, even that would be kind of a magical act. But, I mean, it's my understanding that, um, well, I don't want to say it, but it, I'm, I'm very, very curious <laughs> to see what's, what's going to happen. I will be there with bells. I want to hear all your understandings offline. Later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, you know, one thing that's actually interesting that we're talking about all these different things, the way we define it, right? We're talking about modes of interaction. We're talking about the emotional impact. We're talking about it being, you know, you know, defined by it being like a, a you know, to a location. Um, but I do wonder if in five, ten years, right, this concept of, which eye, big eye, little eye, immersive, that whole question, if that's even going to matter. Because I think there's also this one larger question that we kind of haven't asked yet. And that's, is this not just where all modes of entertainment are kind of slowly going Mm. to where watching something at arm's length is becoming inherently devalued? And so different, I mean, ways of interacting with something more directly with more physical immediacy is that just going to bleed into everything to where there won't even need to be a term for this. It'll just be all about the subgenres. There's a book called The Revenge of Analog by I think the guy's name is David Sachs. I think it came out last year. Um, he's a writer in Canada and he's talking about how it starts with vinyl and then papers the second chapter. I, I'm, I'm just partway through and uh, uh, someone I know recommended to me recently. And it's about, the vinyl story is particularly interesting because as we all know, vinyl's made a very big comeback. And vinyl is not a massive part of the music company's portfolio necessarily, but it is the most profitable sector other than concerts. And the reaction to digital kind of debasing the value of all recorded media has put an emphasis on things that have a physical dimension that are that have presence. The value of the theme parks is just going through the roof. Why? Because even if you, even when you put YouTube videos up of a ride, it's not the same thing as being on the ride. Even when you put 360, you know, videos 
or someone recently did a 360 video CGI recreation of the original Star Tours because it's gone, which I haven't watched yet, but I'm stoked to do that you can find on YouTube. I'll put it in the show notes, right? Maybe we can watch it together, people. Um, these things exist, but they are not the things themselves. They, they point towards the things themselves. They are in some ways ads for going to the park, going to the show. When I think about, you know, there's a difference between using VR in an immersive piece and using VR as a replication of immersive piece. And in the latter, I see that only as an ad, an ad to go to the actual immersive piece. And so I would, and, and there's a legend that has it that like there's this, I was told about one company, a, a company that had a, a pretty valuable piece of IP and they're, they were looking at the future of entertainment and they were saying, you know what? DVD sales are gone some years ago. DVD sales are going to go. Ticket sales for films are, are down. The merchandising is doing fine, but these other two revenue streams, they're just dying, dying, dying. We've got to get into the physical. We've got to get into providing people with tangible experiences that cannot be pirated. Now, one day when we all have the neural lace in our heads that Elon Musk comes and sends one of his clones each night to inject us with in order for him to take over the entire world, he'll just be able to dial up an experience and feed it to us as if it's coming through our senses, and if indeed we're not already trapped in the Matrix, right? But until that day, till all are one. Um, that was a very bad Optimus Prime impersonation. That was really, really until- bad. That was not good. Yeah, I was terrible because yeah. it was because I wasn't ready for it. Fair enough. Um, until that time, the tangible stuff that you know, until we can hack our senses, um, you're gonna need to have people there in the space, and that's the only thing that's of value, right? Because a recording by itself, it's worth you know, it's worth less than ninety nine cents. It's worth you know whatever portion of your Spotify account you know goes to it. Look at any musician who gets their streaming revenues, right? Now, it's ironic to say, you know, to a bunch of people who are listening right now who are like, I can't pay my rent off immersive theater. And a part of me just wants to be like, you know, hold on, because maybe one day you will, but maybe it'll be because you designed the thing that people are doing, not necessarily because you're putting on the show. And there'll be maybe fewer shows or the shows you make will be R&D for the thing that you then go and, and, and give to people to do on their own because you need to be able to instance it. But there will always be a space for the kind of work we're seeing right now because of where the market has to go, which is to non-piratable experiences. You know, I, I, and I, I guess this will, I, this will be my, my wrap-up thing, and it's two things. And the first thing is... Um, uh, well, no, I, 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 I guess it's one thing. Because um, we were talking, or I guess I was talking earlier about what's the difference between an experience on the holodeck and uh, and one of these immersive shows that we all dig so much. And I think one of the differences, one of the differences is. Like there was never an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation where someone goes into the holodeck and what they're experiencing because it was always like um, um, I am in the HMS Pinafore or like I am in like a, you know like I'm a I'm a private eye. It was always like some sort of pre-existing world, some sort of pre-existing fantasy. But it was never like I am going to go into this world 
that was built and created and is fully artificial and totally, it's like this weird piece of art. Like I'm going to walk into this holodeck program that Grant Morrison wrote. I am going into this holodeck program that was written by Margaret Atwood. Like I am going to go into this thing that was made as a piece of art, as like some sort of unique, odd thing that's meant to communicate something or something across, like as a work of art. Um, and I, I, I want that. <laughs> I think that would be really, really um, um, awesome. And then I guess the other thing is because um, you're talking about how you can't replicate the experience of being on uh, an amusement park ride. You can't replicate the experience of being in an immersive piece. And I, 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 I do. I that is absolutely true. And. It's also something that's been true for a very long time of theater. I mean, I, I'm not sure that that's like the the exact crackling difference. I mean, if you've ever seen a recording of um, of a theater piece, then and seen the live version, then you know you know that these two things are radically different things. I mean, um, um, but yeah. the notion of, of like the absolute value of the lived experience of being in a particular place and having a live interaction between the audience and the actors, whether it's you and one other actor in, the, in, in a van or you and a thousand people in a theater and some super high quality Broadway level actors doing their thing. It's, it's just as unique and valuable and just as impossible to distribute. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think that's one of the things, you know, why we see, you know, the massive demand for Hamilton, uh, which carries over into its touring show, mm -hmm. even though, you know, it's, it's literally not the same in that it's not the original cast, yep. right? You know, and, and what someone would be willing to pay to watch, you know, Lin-Manuel, you know, take it up just one more night, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or, or any of the rest of the cast members probably like far outstrips whatever, you know, the current tickets are going for in L.A. or San Francisco by like exponential magnitude, right? Um, and, and I think when that example I gave, when they were... When that company was talking about that stuff, the the you know, immersive theater may have been barely a blink of an eye, you know, or, or even even a thought on the wall. It was about it was about all the the tools that were already in the tool belt that could be be used that way. Brian, you got any uh, any last things? No, I mean I think that the last uh, that last point talking about you know what you were talking about is kind of like where I think things point in an interesting direction. I was at um, VRTL, which is like the lightest like confab for between Hollywood and VR community, right? Um, and uh, Vicky Dobbs-Beck from X-Lab is there. Ted Chilowitz from Fox is there, who's generally their futurist, right? Yeah. And um, when I first met with him two years ago, it was like VR, 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 and maybe mixed reality, right? And now talking about Fox's mission, he was like saying like VR and really mixed reality, oh, and theme parks. Yeah. So it seems like from that industry, like that entire industry is... Um, you know, kind of like realizing that for, for them, right, for film studios, right, the best way to exploit their IP um, is these physical experiences. And there's going to be a lot of money and a lot of investment happening in a lot of different ways. But I think that's why the work that smaller creators are doing is so important because those are the people who actually know how to do shit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's value there. So, so that's sort of the State of the Union, I guess, this started as attempt to you know, wrestle with some um, terms that we have love and complicated relationships with, neither love nor hate, something in between. Uh, and 
I feel like at the end of it, we've sort of said the piece. That's a good episode 99. Episode 100, we're just going to party. Um, still, as we record this, I still don't know what that means. But by, by the time you hear the Noah on the other side of the break, he'll, he'll know exactly what's coming on the pike. Thanks, guys. Once again, I want to thank our guests, Brian Bishop of The Verge and Zay Amsbury for being on the show tonight. Gentlemen, uh, it is an honor and a privilege to not only talk about this stuff with you, but about other geeky stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm very thankful that you're my friends. So there we go. The sappy part's over. You can find Zay at Zay Amsbury on Twitter. You can find Brian at BC Bishop on Twitter. You can also find his column and other writings on The Verge, which is at Verge on Twitter. Um, you can also find us from time to time over on the No Persinium Slack. If you want to join the No Persinium Slack, you just email me, noah at nopersinium.com. You'll also find us hanging around Everything Immersive, which is on Facebook as Everything Immersive or at everythingimmersive.com. You can find links to all the things we do at www.nopersinium.com. We're also at nopersinium on Twitter. I'm at Noah J. Nelson on Twitter. And uh, the Medium Collection uh, blog, uh, which is more and more central to what we do, so much so that you know maybe some other stuff's going to change, um, that is at medium.com slash no dash proscenium. That's your hub now for the best of what we do. So update your files. That's where you want to go. Um, what else is there in the world? Episode 100. It's next week. What's going to be on it? That's a surprise. It's a surprise. Why? Because I haven't figured it out yet. Uh, no, I know. I know what I want it to be. And we're going to have some fun. And hopefully I won't be so tired <laughs> over the course of the next week that I'll actually be able to pull off what I want to pull off here. But that aside, um, this is a very exciting time for Immersive. There's so many things I want to tell you about that I'm actually sworn to secrecy on. And there are other things that are just slight dreams at the moment that are rapidly coming to fruition. Um, we're going to talk more in depth next week. Why? Because it's episode 100 and gosh darn it, I want to. So until then, I'll see you at the show.